Hello and welcome to the first Dairy Dialogue of July. I'm sure many people in the US have taken the day off to make a long 4th of July weekend in what is officially Ice Cream Month, as if anyone ever needed an excuse for eating ice cream. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and Ice Cream Month is just one of the stories we've had online in the past week. It's also been a busy one on other fronts, with Westland shareholders agreeing a takeover from Chinese dairy company Yili. Arla Foods has agreed a new brand license for Middle East cheese business with Kraft Heinz. Tetra Pak has opened an aseptic carton packaging plant in Vietnam. Dairy Crest is no more as it's now changed its name to Saputo Dairy UK. And GEA has launched its Fast Lane service. The World Cheese Awards also announced the entry dates for the submission of cheeses. All these stories and more are available on DairyReporter.com. As promised, it's a new month and it's interesting to see what other special days there are in July. And as you'd expect, there are some interesting and unusual ones. It's National Anti-Boredom Month, which I can't be bothered with. And it's also National Cell Phone Courtesy Month in the US. So you have to look up from your phone at least once every five minutes or only bump into 800 people in the street. You know, half the regular number. July 3rd is Disobedience Day, and it's a bit strange because I deliberately ignored it and disobeyed Disobedience Day. So does that mean that I actually celebrated it? There's also Blueberry Muffin Day, not a good one for me as I'm allergic to blueberries. And there's Different Coloured Eyes Day, which is a bit weird, and Shark Awareness Day, and even Hammock Day. And there are plenty more, some stranger than others. Anyway, on this week's Dairy Dialogue, he said, finally getting to the point, we discuss alternative energy in the form of cow manure with Arla Foods Swedish market head Patrick Hansen and Eric Brattall, head of press at Arla Sweden. And there's also a connection to the second interview, as Arla is one of the companies involved in the Top Safe program, looking at pathogen control. We spoke with Anne Elsa Grausen, co-owner of ISI Food Protection APS, who is the Top Safe project leader. And from last week's Summer Fancy Food Show in New York, Beth Newhart didn't interview one of the New York Yankees at the ball game she went to. She does speak with Christina Downey, CMO of Milkadamia. And of course, we also take a look at the global dairy markets with INTL FC Stone's Liam Fenton. So getting us underway this week is Arla in Sweden and their announcement that they are looking into renewable energy from cow poop. It's not a new concept, but Arla is looking to make a difference environmentally, and 81 farmers in Sweden are already delivering manure to biogas plants running both milk trucks and city buses. To tell us more about the project and what the cooperative is doing in Sweden to become more environmentally friendly are Arla Foods Swedish market head Patrick Hansen and Eric Brathall, head of press at Arla Sweden. So we are, are we're driving 20 million kilometers of, uh, of heavy traffic in Sweden. We're probably one of the biggest heavy traffic uh, companies in Sweden, probably all I see in the UK as well. Uh, we have over the past decade uh, been working with uh, coming up with green ways of driving and we are 100% now uh, fossil free in our transportation uh, as one of the absolute first companies in Sweden being so. Uh, and that is all then driven by biodiesel and these kind of things, uh, but it's also of course uh, we're experimenting with electricity. 
Uh, what we then said, uh, it's important for us to get the government support and the infrastructure and whatever solution there would be in the future to drive these 20 million kilometers. Uh, and from that perspective, we think there is a huge hidden opportunity within biogas where uh, it links directly back to our farmers. You can do something good with the manure. Uh, but in order for this to happen, uh, there needs to be also uh, governmental support and, and uh, you know, uh, a long, long-time perspective on this. Uh, because today, uh, it is okay to drive trucks based on individual biogas factories or whatever it's called, like the one we're doing today. But we don't have an infrastructure, we don't have uh, gas, gas stations uh, enough across Sweden to be able to do it in a, in, in a big scale. And that needs infrastructure, it needs, uh, it, uh, you know, you, then, then the, these things need to be taxed in a way which makes it uh, efficient, uh, etc. And that's something out of our control. So, so what we try to do now is to say, we have an opportunity here, dear politicians. Uh, we have farmers that are eager to start more biogas uh, production. We need help with, so that it's not very complicated to do that. It's way too complicated today from a bureaucracy perspective. Uh, but we also, uh, if we together think that this is uh, a way forward, not only for the buses that sometimes are using it, but we really want to make this bigger, then we have a possibility to do so. Uh, and then we, as Zala, is committing to uh, drive, uh, I think we said 30% of our trucks on this so that we get the market going for this. Uh, but without the politician support, without the help of or clear guidelines from transport minister or whatever it is in Sweden, uh, this is probably not going to happen in a large scale. Have those discussions started yet with the government or what's the government reaction to this? Yeah, so, so we had a very, very positive uh, reaction uh, at the uh, specific event. So we had the energy minister coming down to the event uh, where we presented this. Uh, he, he was very, very supportive, uh, but, uh, but exactly where this is going to end in the political bureaucracy in the end, of course, is something that we don't know yet. It's sort of a, almost a magical solution where you take care, take care of one problem in one end and it makes uh, something good in the other end. Exactly how this is then going to work out together with them uh, is something that you know, we, we're working on, but we are continuing that lobbying work uh, and, and, and making sure that we continue to do these kind of stories that, that makes it top of mind. Because, of course, also they need, they need help in order to be able to drive these kind of things. So the, really, at this point in time, you're exploring the potential for this and you see that there's great potential for this. Yeah, correctly. I mean, uh, we don't have a biogas truck in the past. Now we have one uh, that we, we uh, co-own co co together with, with Volvo. Uh, this is the way where we link fuel to the farms. Uh, and that story is powerful because that is, of course, written on the truck itself. Drive it quite, uh, quite a lot in, in social media uh, and, and in a sort of circular economy, of course, that helps the farmers to have less climate impact. I think we will reduce it by 10%, uh, but it also helps uh, with getting less mobile dependent in the overall system. And people are talking a lot about electricity in Sweden right now. Uh, and perhaps that is a solution in the long run, uh, but uh, it takes a while for electricity to be able to be a solution on all these heavy trucks. If it continues, then we will need to get more of these communities because these are, are made by the farmers, right? It's 34 farmers that, has, uh, that is owning this. And, and then we will need to help 
facilitate, I think, uh, the work for these farmers. But I don't think we will let the company go in and own the biogas plants. I think that will. Well, we have today roughly a hundred farmers producing biogas today, uh, but that's on on the base of two thousand farmers. So. That makes it what five percent. But there is much more interest. I must say, they will need to be long-term committed in investing, uh, and it will ultimately help the farmers with their CO2 footprint. But it will also hopefully help them with their financials, so so that they make uh, money from this, is, uh, which they're not to doing today. But in order to do so, of course, they need to be relatively secure that there is uh, someone that can uh, buy the, the gas once it's produced. And then I think we as a company has a role to play in that, but also other parts of society have a role to play. Potentially it's positive for farmers, for Arla, for the government. Yeah, it has the potential to become a win-win-win. They need to see this as a solution also in, in the long run. And there's a lot of buses in cities that are being driven on biogas today, still in the grand scheme of things, relatively small scale. And that's dependent. One of the reasons for that is, is of course, that there's not enough biogas. And the second one is that the infrastructure, how do you get the biogas into the truck, is not there either. Are there any other technologies that, that you're looking into in order to try and reduce the environmental impact? Yeah, so yeah, we have very ambitious plans. I think also in Sweden, we've come quite a long way. Uh, if you're looking at, at our factories, uh, they are to a, a very large extent already fossil free uh, with 100% green electricity in, in most plants, if not all of the plants. I think we are having one or two factories which still needs to be having a bit of investment, but, 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 uh, but to a large extent, we're already there. From a packaging perspective, we are constantly coming up with innovation to drive the packaging better. From a transportation perspective, we are uh, we're already leaders in Sweden in, in sustainable transportation of heavy trucks. So the journey continues. I think the journey will also be on the farms. How do we make sure we, uh, we measure CO2 footprint and the, and the environmental footprint at the farm in a way that is fair? Uh, and then uh, uh, how do we then utilize these things as biogas, solar panels, whatever it is, uh, in order to help the farmers to um, reduce the, their, their uh, environmental footprints. That's also a, a thing that we, we're starting to embark on, on right now. And that's also where the biggest topics uh, or the, you know, the biggest CS talking about uh, sustainability, that's also one of the big, big, uh, big arenas that you see us talking about how can we how can we increase the, the, the good things that's happening in the farm and, and reduce the negative things? And methane gases, for, for one, you know, how can we how can we give the cows a, a different seed to reduce the methane gas slightly? So a lot of things is happening. I would say there is not a single function within uh, my organization in Sweden which is uh, which is not impacted of or constantly improving the sustainability footprint. Right. It's obviously something that the public is, is demanding as well. They want to see companies being more environmentally friendly and, and improving in every way that they can, I guess. Yeah, it is. And it also drives our, of course, uh, sales uh, and, uh, and uh, image, right? I mean, when we're coming up with uh, initiatives like on Creme Fresh, we used to have a paper plastic cup, we're now moving to a paper cup. Uh, you know, it's quite visible to the consumers that uh, we are uh, taking this seriously uh, and also with the scale that we have as a company uh, at least in Sweden we can together with uh, entrepreneurs and, and packaging companies initiate these kind of projects because we would then be a big buyer of that 
which is also helping the rest of the industry. So as a, probably the biggest supplier of food in Sweden, then of course we have a responsibility to constantly drive the development together with the packaging companies. As if I'd somehow planned this show, there's a connection between the last interview and the next one. Arla is one of the companies participating in the Top Safe program in Denmark, which is a collaboration between Danish business and research partners that has produced some results that mean consumers can be better protected against foodborne pathogens. The project is being led by Anne Elsa Krauersen, who is also co-owner of ISI Food Protection APS in Aarhus, and I asked about what the company does. Our own company, we're microbiologists. So we, we do what we would call uh, applied microbiology. So we have a microbiology lab. We've got my classified microbiological laboratories and where, where we're being relatively smaller than what you'd say a university or big research institute. It means that we've got lower, lower overhead. We're cheaper for our customers. We're faster, more flexible, more agile. And we got permission to work with some of the microorganisms, which are difficult to get permission for nowadays due to legislation. Like, for example, Clostridium botulinum, which is a potential biological warfare where you need a biosecurity approval like that. Um, the pathogenic E. coli, E. coli VTEC, we can do actual documentation tests, challenge tests, adding them deliberately and seeing what happens uh, to document that food products are safe. So you would have high security at your place then? Yes, yes, we do. And we have very experienced people. There always is also a good place to be because some of the bigger labs, like also the Danish authorities, the food authorities and surveillance labs like that, they've closed and moved to Copenhagen. So we've got all the employees who have tremendous experience. And, and it's, you know, with microbiology, people either love it or hate it. Mm. And those who have worked with it and love it, they are willing to quit jobs and join a small startup like us just to be back microbiology again. All right. And so we've got really good people. We've got really good people employed, and we're still relatively small. We're like 15, 20 people in total. It's a lot of fun, and we yeah. do what we think is really makes sense, and we really think creates value and makes fun. And, of course, a lot of our customers will not want that we mention their name at all, that we work together, because they see it oh, working like someone like us means that they've got trouble. But others like Gala, they, they take the opposite approach. No, it means we're proactive and want to remain out of trouble. Gala are our direct neighbors here, so we have you know, what you would call ongoing partnership with them, that, that all the work that they need to do to document the safety of their products, where they need to work with real pathogens that stand down in our lab. So basically, you're working with companies to ensure that they don't have any issues with their products? Yes, to document, like, for example, in connection with their product development, that the new changes and things they're making if they want to remove preservatives or go from chill to, to ambient storage or whatever, that that's safe and, and also the products don't spoil. But actually, we do a lot more than that. We also work on the positive side, uh, fermentation and, and biopreservation, using protective cultures or using the bacteriophages, which is the TopSafe project. That's actually a kind of biopreservation. So how did the TopSafe project come about? That was um, back in 2014, I think. I, uh, I had a good contact at the University of Copenhagen, a professor called Lona Bronsted, uh, who's a real expert in these bacteriophages. And, and, and we were talking about what, you know, and we're thinking that with the gram-negative pathogens, um, Salmonella, E. coli, Campylobacter, 
that what a food producer can do against them is really very limited. They can just trust that their raw material is without the pathogen, or if they realize that it's there, they can heat it. But then if you're producing a fresh food product, it's not fresh anymore. So we thought there must be something that they can do to enhance, you know, as a second safety net or something. It's not something that you would do to... You would not use uh, bacteriophages to substitute good raw material quality or good hygiene or anything like that. You would use it as an extra safety net, um, which the Danish industry definitely is interested in because they want to really be in forefront if there's anything more they can do. So we we presented that idea to uh, Danish Crown and Arla and a chicken producer called Danko and then a producer. Of, uh, we didn't have the vegetables in, in the beginning because that industry is so fragmented. But we got a vegetable producer on the way. And and they were all very enthusiastic about the idea, so they joined in. And, and since the legislation around the bacteriophages is not really black and white, certainly wasn't in 14 either. And we thought if we want to change anything in the legislation, it probably has to be at an EU level, then we need the wide industry to back it up and say we all need this. So that was the idea in it has been a huge project. I mean, I've been the project leader all along. I wouldn't do something that big again, <laughs> I must admit. <laughs> but um, and, and the Danish, uh, it's a Danish national program, which is when you translate it directly, it becomes a green development and demonstration program. It's it's a program from the Ministry of, of Environment and Food to support the industry in both doing something more for the environment but also for their business at the same time. So that's the whole aim of the program. And we've then been working since January 15, and simply working all the way from at the University of Copenhagen. They've been doing the basic research, isolating phages, investigating how they work, seeing how could we set, because normally you would need a cocktail, several. You'd need a mix to make something which is efficient enough. If you want to select that in an intelligent way, you need to understand how they work. And also, if you want to be sure that they're safe to use and won't cause trouble when you use them, you need to know the DNA sequence to be sure they don't contain anything you don't want. So so that's what the University of Copenhagen have been doing. And then I've been working together with the industries in saying, well, how could we make it work out in production? So that's the point you're at right now. Yes. And we've, and we've uh, in, in some of the industries, we've actually tested in production. In other industries, we've tested in pilot scale. And in others, again, it's uh, still models in the lab. So it's a bit different because there was different starting points in the different industries and also different complexity of the problem. Uh, and dairy is one of the difficult ones where, where the matrix uh, has quite an impact on what goes on. So, But then that's where we are now. The project is ending here um, this autumn. And, and I think the results that we have, and luckily the industry agrees and also wants to tell about it and say this is something which we think that others should also have benefit of knowing. And it's still an area which needs more development and also on the legislation side. And we're still in the situation, right, if we want to move things, we need to have enough people saying we need it. So that's kind of like the idea and it's also why we want to have a seminar and want to tell about it. What will the seminar consist of? The seminar will will um, actually start with a kind of like status on what are the trends right now in zoonotic disease in the EU, where are we in this area? And and then they will have something uh, on the results, we'll have quite a bit on the results on, from the project and the different industries, what do we know, what's doable, what do we know about phases in general, what have we learned? And, uh, and, and then we'll have also something on the legislation. 
we, in that way we want to cover the whole thing and it is definitely oriented towards the industry and not oriented towards fundamental research. So what kind of um, industry people are you expecting to or hoping will attend this and, and also geographically who are you hoping will attend this? Whoever may be interested, it's going to be held in English and so geographically whoever may be interested in coming to all hoops and hearing about phages. But industries, I mean, so we're covering meat, we're covering dairy, we're covering vegetables. And uh, how, what's the capacity? Obviously, you're not holding it in the uh, in this football stadium. No, we're not. Uh, initially, we have 100 seats. But if, it, if it turns out that's not enough, then I'm thinking that we have a conference centre right next door. So I'm thinking that we'll solve it somehow. So what does the future hold for the programme? I mean, particularly Campylobacter. Campylobacter, they're a terribly difficult type of microorganism. They're difficult to work with in the lab, but they're also very difficult to get under control uh, out in primary production and therefore also end up in the food store. Uh, and, and they were also, it turned out, more difficult to control with phages uh, than the other microorganisms. So, so we could see that we have a gap there still, uh, and we've actually got a follow-up project from the same funding organ body from the GDP uh, for looking at uh, what you could call next generation solutions, phage based but not just direct phages. And that project is starting up this autumn. And that's something which has potential to be uh, used in, in other industries also then. Now it's over to the US for the Summer Fancy Food Show, which our reporter Beth Newhart attended in New York City, and among the companies she spoke with was Milkadamia, which uses macadamia nuts to produce a variety of products, soon to include a butter alternative. Beth spoke with the company's chief marketing officer, Christina Downey. So Milkadamia started about four years ago. Uh, we actually have our own farms, uh, so it's kind of started from the farm this viewpoint that macadamias are this really healthy, nutritious nut and that everyone in the U.S. just covers them full of chocolate and, you know, that's how we know nuts, right? Or the macadamia cookies, right, mm -hmm. that we have. Uh, but that there's, they're very good for you. And so the owners of the farm wanted to create something with it. Again, noticing what was going on in the plant-based beverage. Macadamia is perfect for it, right? It's creamy, it's buttery. I mean, it's really got uh, that mild taste where almonds, you know, you really, with an almond milk, you'll taste the almond. It's a little more nut forward. So, started working on the milks and they launched first into cafes because cafes are kind of the incubators of trends. So, uh, started launching into the cafes and then retailers started coming up and saying, hey, we want to do that and like oh well all we have is a latte version so then started developing the milk so we've been in retail now for about three years we're probably in around 10,000 locations and last year we launched creamers and this year we're launching our butter so just starting to expand out yeah it's it puts you at a different price point because macadamias aren't cheap so if you're trying to go big and broad Quickly, so if you're a Quaker getting into the game, not surprising getting into oat, which is a very hot category. And of course, coming from Quaker, oat makes sense, but it's also a commodity that you can buy a lot of, and it's on the lower end for a price point. So macadamia milk is more expensive, so it is a little more niche that way. We also, because we have our own farms and we do a lot of our own processing, 
we have the ability to capture a lot of the best in academia, so it's you know pretty vertically integrated, where others in the states don't have that. So what makes Macadamia not different or better as a base for a milk alternative than what is out there? For us, we really talk about it. Well, there there is some probably health benefits because the macadamia has some great health benefits. But for us, really, the two big things are taste. It's a very creamy, neutral milk. Uh, so if you're moving from dairy to non-dairy, it's an easy plant milk to have because you don't have that nut-forward taste. And more and more, we're seeing people be on flexitarian diets, so they're going back and forth with things. So they're looking for things not necessarily because they're strictly vegan, but they're looking for things to reduce here and there, but they taste can be an issue. So it's got a great taste, and we hear that all the time. So that's one. And then two, some of the other nuts, depending on what they are, um, have a bigger environmental impact. Uh, I think we know a lot about the almond and the amount of water that it takes for the almonds, where because the macadamia is native to Australia, where we are, we don't have an irrigation system. It is fed by you know natural rainwater. And so there are a lot of people who come to plant-based milks from an eco-concern basis, right? So then we fit that bill really well. So the latest launch is the butter, is that correct? Yeah, yeah we've been really working on it for a while. And, and part of it is, one, we want to get the taste just right. Uh, and the other part is we're not using palm oil. Again, we're really focus on the environment and because palm does a lot of the deforestation and there's issues even the sustainable palm means first they def you know they got rid of the rainforest and then they planted palm and now after a few years it's sustainable so we didn't want to go down that route but that also means you have stability issues because palm oil helps keep it stable and so we've been working on the recipe for quite some time but we're getting it to a really good place, so we're very excited to launch it. Right now it's just salted, and it's a lightly salted, but we are working on an unsalted. You don't really see that in vegan butters, and uh, since I'm the CMO and I have some influence and I'm a huge baker, <laughs> I've been pushing on the unsalted because, you, again, you, I have a hard time finding that um, from a vegan perspective, and I like to make you know my biscottis and my breads and things. So. I want unsalted version. And I think there's a lot of people out there that do. Um, and we've had some interest from people in food service that have come to us uh, and asking about it because more and more you're seeing the cafes with the plant-based milk now also trying to make vegan, you know, baked goods. And it's very hard if you don't have an unsalted butter. We're hoping to be on retail shelf this fall uh, and really probably in a select few retailers and then more national in 2020. We're trying to figure out where we want to go because, again, we're at a higher price point, so really making sure we're choiceful in that. But what we're really excited about from a plant-based is that it's growing across so many different categories, right? I just think you're going to see that continue to grow, and it's going to grow in a way that it didn't originally, where it was just changing what you had and replacing it with more of a plant-based, and now it's about taste. Because of our brand and the, and the macadamia nut, looking at more of those decadent areas is a smart area for us to plant. So I, I don't think like a cheese, maybe a cream cheese, but not like a base cheese. And how is it referred to on, on the pack? Is it, do you say milk or do you say milk alternative? You say macadamia milk.
Uh, yeah, we think that uh, the FDA should not be defining um, or changing the definition of milk. If you go onto any dictionary, whether it's Miriam's or Oxford, whatever you want, you will see milk, one of it is plant-based, right? And we have used that term for centuries. You know, the first almond milks were in the Middle Ages because people didn't have refrigeration, so you weren't, you know, storing dairy milk, and they didn't even think about that. So. Uh, yeah, we think it should be called what it is, just like you call coconut cream, coconut cream. To yeah. have to rename that right. seems silly to us. Mm-hmm. Seems protectionism to us, yeah. and we get it. I mean, you know, we're farmers. If anything, our hearts do go out to the small dairy farmers that are really hurting. Um, but they're hurting more not from what we're doing. Um, they're hurting from big dairy. Uh, one of our big initiatives that we talk about is regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming. We're big, big believers in that and putting a lot of effort into it, in part just because a lot of us as individuals and our consumers, I think, are really concerned about what's going on with the climate everywhere. Our viewpoint is that we all vote of how we're going to save the environment with our dollars and where we spend our money, and we can't wait for our government to fix things and so we got to do it ourselves so yeah our farm is regeneratively farmed and as we work with other suppliers we're trying to bring them on board and understand that but that is something that we we talk a lot about and we don't think we're perfect Uh, we're not a brand that says hey look at us we're amazing we're a brand that says hey we're trying (laughs) and I, I think that's what consumers are looking for brands that are trying to move in the right direction and do things and again, like I said, we're, we're not perfect, but we're looking to be, always get better. And on the agriculture side of like farming macadamia nuts um, versus, like you said, almonds, obviously they use a lot of uh, water for almonds. Right. So do so you think that there's a more or less of a you know, impact on the environment in macadamia farming? Yeah, there's definitely less of an impact because we're not using an irrigation system. Um, we're using nuts that are in their local native habitat. And I think I think that is something you're going to start to see more and more. Uh, there's such a problem. One, consumers want non-GMO. And farmers haven't figured out right now, as the climate keeps changing, what we're growing is not working as well. So they're looking at new ways to have seeds and things survive, droughts, but then you're do- that's genetically modified, right? So I think, you know, when I think back to my childhood, I had strawberries in June. You know, I had the fruit in season and I didn't have it all year round. And I think you might start to see that again in sourcing food from where the food is native to. I think that's going to start to come back a bit more. You know, one of the things when getting into the category, and this is all plant-based as a whole, I, I see a lot written up about whether lately about like impossible burger I'm like well it's you know it's not any better for you it's not about just health it's about our other values right and we can vegans can still wanna you know some bad junk food now and again like there's nothing wrong with that like we have that craving too just like anyone else so it, it taste is a, a huge driver for things and I, I think that's gonna continue where it was like when you think about the early, like, straight up, like, way yeah. soy milk, you know, at the beginning is like, oh. right. Yeah. But you were vegan, so that's what you drank, you yeah. know, and you got used to it and you moved on. But that's not the case, yeah. and I think it's across everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
we're foodies, right? I, I think as a culture, we've gotten even more foodie. So all the plant-based food it has to be that too. Yeah. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. Auto reversed its price increases of uh, last week, this week. Last week we seemed to be stronger on the back of hot weather on the continent where it was perceived that uh, we may encounter similar drought levels of last year affecting milk production and, and increasing demand for, for cream and butter. However, um, as the heat conditions eased, so did the prices. This is also helped by the fact that GDT prices were back uh, almost 5% for butter. Quarter 3 EEX butter was down about €50 Euros, uh, to the 38.75 level from 39.35 of last week and quarter four back from around 40.25 to 39.25. Skimmel powder, uh, on the other hand, continued to be more stable with quarter three remaining around the 21.25 level and quarter four, the 21.80 level. Um, there was some strength, however, in quarter one at 2020. Uh, level was up from 22.10 to 22.60 level. But the market does seem to be stalling in the near term, also on the physical side. Way was flat, continuing to trade around the 680-690 level. Thank you, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And so another half an hour or so has gone by, and now you know a little bit more about cow poop, nasty bacteria, and macadamia nuts. I already have next week's show lined up, but as with all news, you can never be 100% certain until the last moment, because something else could come up. At the very least, we will have three interviews on biotechnology, leak detection, and a new suction and discharge hose for the food and beverage industry. I'll officially be on vacation next week, but still working a little bit through the holiday, including doing the podcast, although what kind of shape I'll be in by Friday after several days hiking in the Scottish hills and mountains is anyone's guess. I know they're not quite the Alps or the Andes, but there are still some pretty challenging walks in the area, made even more challenging by carrying way too much photography gear. I'll let you know next week if I get trampled by cows or bumped into someone ignoring cell phone courtesy month, and I shall probably say something if they're also observing ice cream month and I get smeared with chocolate ice cream. So until next week, enjoy ice cream month and thanks for listening. Thank you.